Hey everyone, this is David Chalian, the CNN political director, and this is The Daily DC. Thanks so much for listening. Today on the podcast, the CNN climate crisis town hall extravaganza. You may have caught some of the seven hours of nonstop programming last night on CNN with 10 presidential candidates for the 2020 Democratic nomination, all on the single issue of the climate crisis. And I wish I could replay every candidate. And I I just want to give you some snippets of some of the highlights of the event. But I, I first just want to say, you know, this obviously there has been a groundswell from climate change activists demanding a climate change debate. And the Democratic National Committee had said time and again that they are not going to do single issue debates. And therefore, there was this opportunity to host a single issue series of back to back town halls, which CNN did last night. It was sort of an unprecedented event. I don't recall any time in presidential political history in the TV era, in the 24 hour cable news era, where this much time was dedicated to just one topic, allowing candidates to sort of put out their positions and take questions from voters. The other thing that was worth noting Obviously, there are some differences between the candidates. You'll hear some of that in a moment. But the biggest takeaway in terms of their agreement to me from last night was sort of the urgency of now. The each and every one of those 10 Democratic candidates addressed this issue and attempted to tackle this issue in all of its components in the starkest of terms, that it is an issue of imminent danger and concern. This is something that must be dealt with now, not down the road, is sort of the unified message that all the candidates had. In addition to agreeing on a lot of the specific policy areas, if not all of them, some differences on nuclear energy, on whether or not to ban fracking, banning offshore drilling. You will also note the political piece of this, which is that a lot of the questioners last night were young people and the youth vote. Democrats are not going to be able to defeat Donald Trump for a second term without a mobilized, engaged, motivated, turned out youth vote. That is a key component to the coalition that needs to show up for the Democrats in order for a Democrat to to win the 270 electoral votes to defeat Donald Trump the next fall. And this was an opportunity for Democrats to engage that younger demographic. This is an issue that is a completely animating issue for them. And it was smart politics in that way to dedicate the time for it that these candidates took off the trail or whatever to get the candidates on the stage and do this. It is an opportunity to start motivating, energizing, activating a younger demographic that is so important to their overall sort of winning coalition if they're to be successful next year. With that, I I want you to hear from some of the candidates. I thought maybe Elizabeth Warren might have had the best soundbite of the night in terms of pushing back on the Republican frame of the inconveniences, right? I mean, the Trump campaign is selling straws on its campaign website to make sure that they paint the idea of banning plastic straws as some left-wing, nutty kind of response to a massive global problem. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that the Trump campaign 
has the political losing message here. I mean, that may there may be many people out there in America, independents, Republicans, even Democrats, who think some of this stuff may be too inconvenient to their lives, the the consumer-based stuff. And it's an approach that has forever been in the political debate over climate change. But Elizabeth Warren took it head on in a way that I think gave a preview to how she's going to fight if she's the nominee on some of the conservative, Republican, right-wing blogosphere, echo chamber, Fox News sort of world of how they portray things. This was Elizabeth Warren taking on the plastic straws bid and and the other pieces of the consumer critique as a sideshow to to the problem overall. Elizabeth Warren last night at her climate change town hall. A quick question about going from the worker to the consumer. Today, the president announced plans to roll back energy-saving light bulbs, and he wants to reintroduce four different kinds which I'm not going to burden you with, but one of them is the candle-shaped ones, and those, those are a favorite for a lot of people, by the way. But do you think that the government should be in the business of telling you what kind of light bulb you can have? Oh, come on. Give me a break. You know... Is that look, a yes? No. Here's... It, look, there are a lot of ways that we try to change our energy consumption and our pollution. And God bless all of those ways. Some of it is with light bulbs, some of it is on straws, some of it, dang, is on cheeseburgers, right? There are a lot of different pieces to this. And I get that people are trying to find the part that they can work on and what can they do. And I'm in favor of that and I'm going to help and I'm going to support. But understand, this is exactly what the fossil fuel industry hopes we're all talking about. (laughs) That's what they want us to talk about. This is your problem They want to be able to stir up a lot of controversy around your light bulbs, around your straws, and around your cheeseburgers. When 70% of the pollution of the carbon that we're throwing into the air comes from three industries, and we can set our targets and say by 2028, 2030, and 2035, no more. Think about that right there. Now, the other 30% we still got to work on. Oh, no, we don't stop at 70%. But the point is, that's where we need to focus. And why don't we focus there? It's corruption. It's these giant corporations that keep hiring the PR firms that does it. Everybody has fun with it, right? Gets it all out there. So we don't look at who's still making the big bucks of polluting our earth. The time for that is past. We have a chance, a chance left in 2020 to turn this around. But we are we are running out of time on this one. So we've got to do this in 2020. And that means the first thing we've got to do is we've got to attack this corruption head on in Washington and say enough of having the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry, write all our laws in this area. No more. Kamala Harris, the senator from California, had a different response. She kind of empathized with the moment. She understood the problem with moving to paper straws, that they don't operate as well and that there needs to be some innovation here. Here was uh, Senator Harris's response to the notion of moving away from plastic straws. Plastic straws are a big thing right now. Yeah. Do you ban plastic straws? I think we should. 
Yes. I mean, look, I'm going to be honest. It's really difficult to drink out of a paper straw when you had if you're just like if you don't gulp it down immediately, it starts to bend. Yes. And, then, and then, you know, the little thing catches it. And then, you know, but, so we got to kind of perfect that one a little bit more. <laughs> so you ban it, but rely on innovation. I mean, we got we got it. Yeah. Innovation is, is a process, right? You don't just do it. Innovation is a process, but, but, you know, let's, let's encourage innovation. And, and, you know, we, I think we could do a little bit better than some of those flimsy plastic straws, but we do need to ban the plastic. All right. We're going to have much more. One other element to the overall climate change debate that was discussed was of course the notion that it is a global issue. Obviously the United States is not responsible for the entirety of climate change. So how to deal with this on the world stage was something that former Vice President Joe Biden leaned heavily into, sort of described it as his wheelhouse, especially coming off the recent G7 meeting in France, where President Trump did not attend a G7 meeting on climate. There was an empty chair there, if you saw those pictures. And Biden just took that to task, leaned into his experience on the world stage as a particular sort of trump card, pardon the pun, that he has in his deck as it relates to this issue, uh, not just against the president, but against a field of Democratic contenders who do not share the experience he has on the world stage. Here's former Vice President Joe Biden. And the fact of the matter is that we make up 15 percent of the problem. The rest of the world makes up 80 percent, 85 percent of the problem. If we did everything perfectly, everything, and we must and should in order to get other countries to move, we still have to get the rest of the world to come along. And the fact of the matter is we have to up the ante considerably. And I have great experience in leading coalitions, both at home and internationally. And I think I can do that better than anybody who, uh, no matter what their plans. Well, that's one of the things that President Trump has said about the climate change accord. Uh, the, the agreement is that other countries, even if we do everything right, other countries are not going to be following it, and therefore it's not worth being well, part of Well, he's dead wrong across the board on basically everything, you know. No, I mean, I'm not being facetious. Look, you know, we, we got to start choosing science over, uh, over, over fantasy here. The fact of the matter is that what he did by removing the United States as the leader of the Paris Climate Accord, he in fact dissipated the enthusiasm across the board. The rest of the countries are saying, whoa, wait a minute. Why are we engaged in this if, they're, if the United States is stepping down? We're in a position where when we put that together, and I was the one that suggested to the president, President Obama, I don't want to confuse presidents here, President Obama, that China would be part of this effort. When I came back after a long meeting with Xi Jinping in Beijing, and he, and he was. But here's the deal. The deal is now what's happened is that as we have pulled out, there is no leadership. There is no leadership. I know almost every one of these world leaders. If I were if I'd been president today, I would have at the G7 made sure this became the topic. There would be no empty chair. I would be pulling the G7 together. I would be down with the president of Brazil saying enough is enough. This is what we're going to do. And this is what's going to happen if you don't do it. This is to bring the world together. Folks, look. This is such an urgent problem. We need to be able. The first thing I do as president of the United States is call a meeting of all the nations who signed on to the court in Washington, D.C. to up the ante. Because we have learned so much just in the last three years about the science of what has to happen quicker. And the world knows it. 
And we should be in a position where we generate support around the rest of the world. And those who don't do their part, don't participate, then in fact, they face consequences. They face consequences. I want to ask you. When the issue of nuclear energy came up, I want you to hear this exchange between Don Lemon and Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey. Uh, Booker, you know, there are some on that stage. Bernie Sanders, for one, really wants to eliminate nuclear energy altogether as an energy source, as do others. But Booker took a different approach, which is to sort of say nuclear energy is going to be here, at least as part of a transition through fossil fuel based energy economy into a green energy economy and that he was not at all willing to sort of join the eradicate nuclear energy crowd. It was a bit of a differentiator for him, for Andrew Yang as well. But but take a listen to the way Cory Booker tackles the issue of nuclear energy. Can we talk about nuclear energy? Because you say nuclear energy is key to fighting climate change, but you know there are inherent risks in that, and that's the possibility of disasters like Fukushima, like Chernobyl, like Three Mile Island. The fact is there are currently no safe ways or permanent ways to dispose of the most dangerous radioactive waste. What would you do to help mitigate those dangers? So this is where study is actually, and science is really important. So let's deal with the facts and the data. When I was mayor of the city of Newark, I used to have strong people coming with strong opinions, strong emotions. I used to have saying, God, we trust, but everybody else bring me data. And, and we need to look at the numbers right now. So my plan says that we need to be our, our, at, at a zero carbon electri- electricity by 2030. That's, that's 10 years from the time that I will win the presidency of the United States of America. <laughs> And right now, nuclear is more than 50% of our non-carbon-causing energy. So people who think that we can get there without nuclear being part of the blend just aren't looking at the facts. But here's something that I want to tell you right now. The disasters from Chernobyl to, to, to Japan. Trust me, when you live in a community, as New Jersey does, with nuclear plants, and, and my mom, who lives in Nevada, and, and all this stuff, all, all the fights, righteous fights to, uh, to protect what they plan to do at Yucca Mountain, I'm very aware of these things. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to double down. I'm going to read everything I can about nuclear. I'm going to visit with nuclear scientists. I'm going to talk to folks. And this is the exciting thing. Next generation nuclear, where the science is going, is, to me, at first, it sounded like science fiction. Mm-hmm. We're talking about historic plants, but... Where the science has gone right now is, is new nuclear actually portends of exciting things where you have no risk of the kind of meltdowns we're seeing, where they eat spent fuel rods. We actually can go to the kind of innovations that make nuclear safe or, or safe. And so this is the point I'm making. I'm a competitor. I'm a baller. I played football in the Pac-10, go Stanford, now Pac-12. And I'm a competitor. This is one thing that really ticks me off. We used to have the most R&D intensive economy on the planet. We are no longer the research in terms of percentage of our GDP that we invest in R&D. We're no longer there. We're falling behind. Other countries want to out-innovate us for the ideas of the future. That's unacceptable to me. Call it pride or call it just confidence that if America can compete, we can win. So government needs to step up in a much more significant way. That's why my plan has a massive moonshot-like investment in the technologies of the future, which range from everything from battery storage technology to the aviation industry, all the way to nuclear. 
The future we need to not be fearful of, we need to embrace the possibilities. And nuclear, I believe, if we start doing the research, making the investments, I've already been in Washington working across the aisle to clean up a regulatory regime that's made for the nuclear reactors of the 70s to prepare for the possibilities of the future. We've got to get people excited about what's there. And we, as a society, as Americans, must make the investments so that we lead humanity to the innovations, to the breakthroughs, to the jobs of the future. And one final bit of candidate sound that I want you guys to hear. Pete Buttigieg sort of took his discussion of climate change to biblical proportions, or at least theological, religious proportions in in talking about God and climate change. It, it is always intriguing. Buttigieg talks about his faith quite a bit on the trail. He also is always, he says he's always a bit cautious to be seen as putting his faith on others, but he he clearly, he talks about it often, and he is clearly politically trying to reframe for the Democratic Party the notion that somehow only the Republican Party in American politics is the faithful, religious, observant party, and that there are, there is a whole thought about religion that A, can be apolitical, but B, that Buttigieg thinks actually lines up with the values of the Democratic Party. Anyway, he last night explored this notion of God and what God may perceive as this climate change debate royals, what what a God looking down on that may actually be thinking. Here's Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend. Let's talk in language that is understood across the heartland about faith. You know, if if you believe that God is watching as poison is being belched into the air of creation and people are being harmed by it, countries are at risk of vanishing in low-lying areas. Who do you suppose God thinks of that? I bet he thinks it's messed up. And you don't have to be religious to see the moral dimensions of this, because frankly, every religious and non-religious moral tradition tells us that we have some responsibility of stewardship, some responsibility for taking care of what's around us, not to mention taking care of our neighbor. And eventually it gets to the point where this is less and less about the planet as an abstract thing and more and more about specific people suffering specific harm because of what we're doing right now. At least one way of talking about this is that it's a kind of sin. That does it for this edition of The Daily DC. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you'll tune in again right here tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.